the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good evening, and welcome to the Business of Giving. I'm Denver Frederick, and we're going to begin tonight with a former gold medal Olympic champion. She is Donna Deverona, who won two gold medals for swimming in the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, became a fixture on IABC's Wide World of Sports, and is a founding member of the Women's Sports Foundation. She tells us those early days in broadcasting had many ups, but they also had their downs. I woke up that morning. I never threw up before a swimming meet. <laughs> this one, I went into the studio. I was given the score wrong. Oh. The very first thing. And this is when when we were trying to break into the sport mm-hmm. as, as announcers. And uh, I, w- I was terrible. Yeah, I yeah. froze. Live television. They started playing music between the scores. Oh, my goodness. I came back to my apartment. Nobody called me for a week. And then you'll hear from Gail Smith, the CEO of The One Campaign, an effort that was co-founded by rock star Bono. She says that the organization grew out of this simple theory. One was born out of those kind of two momentous events with a simple theory that organized citizens that are smart on policy, wise on politics, have a creative edge. So use pop culture, other things that capture the popular information rather than wonkiness can actually secure real change. But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, November 3rd. A record 67 million U.S. residents speak a foreign language at home. In America's five largest cities, just under half speak a language other than English. In New York City, that figure is 49 percent. In Los Angeles, it's 59 percent. Green America released its 2019 Chocolate Scorecard, which grades companies based on factors such as their fair labor practices and efforts to end deforestation. Mars and Nestle's received C-pluses, while Hershey received a C. The only company to receive a failing grade was Godiva. Conflicts of interest, tainted money, and donors making excessive demands about how charities use their gifts are fundraisers' top ethical concerns, according to a new survey of the Association of Fundraising Professional Members. Two out of three children did not meet the standards for reading proficiency set by the National Assessment of Educational Progress, and reading scores declined in half the states. The Brain and Behavior Research Foundation announced grants totaling $13.8 million to 200 early career scientists in 20 countries who are engaged in groundbreaking neurobiological research on the causes of and treatments and prevention strategies for psychiatric disorders. And finally, there are more young people than ever before. About 41% of the global population is aged 24 or under, and in Africa, 41% is under 15. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back to speak with Donna Deverona right after this. Most teachers spend more than $500 of their own money on school supplies each year. That's because too many classrooms lack books, microscopes, art supplies, and even pencils. At DonorsChoose.org, you can help students and teachers get the resources they need for a successful education. Whether you support a field trip to a local museum, yoga mats for a health class, or technology to teach kids to code, you can join the 2 million individuals who've already made a difference in the classroom. Visit Donor DonorsChoose.org to bring a classroom dream to life. I used to have more hair. I used to have more color. And I used to have cancer. I beat it. I did. Not alone. I used to have no idea what the American Cancer Society did. Research? Yeah. But also free rides to chemo and free lodging near hospitals. I used to maybe give a little. Then I got so much back. I used to have cancer. Please give at cancer.org. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at bizofgive and at facebook.com slash businessofgiving. And now back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. We love inspirational stories of trailblazers. 
those who have made the best of a situation they were in, as challenging as it was, and then worked hard and persevered in an effort to make it better for those who followed. One of the most remarkable of those stories is that of Donna Deverona, gold medal winning Olympic swimmer, pioneering sports broadcaster, and the inspiration for the creation of the Women's Sports Foundation. Good evening, Donna, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Well, thank you so much. It's nice to be here. You retired from swimming at just 17 years of age. Now, this is right after you won two gold medals in the Tokyo Olympics. What were the circumstances at the time, and we're talking the early 1960s, that compelled you to have to make that decision? Well, at my time in the 60s, uh, young girls rarely competed in high school sports Mm -hmm. and certainly not on the collegiate level. So at 17, going into my senior year in high school, (laughs) along with my peers, I was looking at, do I try to continue to swim and stay on top without an opportunity in college because I wanted to go to college because there were no programs, or do I retire and take advantage, and I was one of the fortunate ones, of all the things coming my way. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of things like uh, Speedo swimsuits wanted to sponsor me. Um, and the, in those days, the minute you made a decision to use a sponsor, you were you were banned from your sport because we were true amateurs. Oh, with the big A. Not today yeah. where you have this fuzzy little line. Yeah, right. <laughs> no. So um, I just said, listen, I've been on top since I've been 13. Mm-hmm. I don't want to quit on the bottom. I want to – pay my way to college because there were no scholarships. Say that again. There were no scholarships no. for women? No, and I wasn't a straight-A student that was going to get a scholarship. <laughs> I was a pretty solid B student when I, on a good day. You had A's in the pool. Yeah, I had to get straight A's my senior year to get into UCLA. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the truth is is that I, I really had to quit. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you take what's given you in, in your life. And for me, actually, it opened the door for many other great opportunities. Well, what did you do then at 17? Well, at 17, I picked up the phone, mm-hmm. uh, and I said to ABC, because in 1961, they covered, they started Wide World of Sports as oh, a yes. pilot. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they squeezed in my last race, and I broke a world record. Uh-huh. And I had 18 of them you had, I recall. Yes, I did. <laughs> and... Um, I got to know the producers because a lot of the producers didn't know anything about amateur sports. Mm-hmm. And I, my, I had a great rivalry with my teammate. And so every event they covered, they covered me. Mm-hmm. And they made me into a little mini star. And they would come to me and say, what races should we cover? And I said, well, you should cover this race or that race. So make a long story short, I pick up the phone and I said to Chuck Howard. Yep. Uh, and he worked, of course, with the great Rune Arledge. Uh, He's a legend I, in himself, it, along with Rune, but yeah, both of them are. Both, yeah. uh, and I just said, listen, I can't bear to quit. I really can't. I love the travel. I love the sport. But I could if I could just cover it. And they said, well, we want you to think about it because the minute you do that, we, we don't want to be accused of turning your professional. Mm-hmm. So a week later, I call him back. Now, this was a process of from October to February because okay. I, I swam in one more competition. Mm-hmm. And um, – I picked up the phone. And I said, I want to do it. So they got me a work permit because I was 17. Yeah. They flew me back to Yale University to cover the men's swimming event, mm-hmm. sat me down live, sat me down to Jim McKay, slapped Don Schollander or something like that. Schollander. Schollander, yeah, I remember yeah. that. Slapped a headset on me and said, okay, go. You're a sports commentator. <laughs> well, Donna, this kind of blows my mind yeah. because I know what the sports world is like, yeah. particularly for women. Yes. We all know what the early 1960s was like. Not that we don't have a long way to go today, but the yes. 60s were the 60s. And you're a kid yeah, right. <laughs> at 17. What was it like? Well, I think it's a good thing I didn't know what I know now. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth is I did start at with someone that uh, – I mean, Jim McKay was uh, – again, I didn't know even know how great he was. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, he was a gentleman's gentleman. Yes, he was. Uh, and what my job was, which announcers don't have to do as much now, I did all the research for him. Mm-hmm. Basically, I went down, got the sound bites, talked to the coaches, talked to the athletes. I would sit next to him before the races and, and feed him, you know, this is how you, the race is probably going to go. And uh, – I earned his respect, mm-hmm. and I earned the producer's respect, at least in my sport. Mm-hmm. What the difficulty was was getting off the pool deck because they said, oh, your voice works for women swimming now. I started with men, and then they brought in a male announcer for the yeah, first yeah, Olympics. Yeah, yeah. So you got pigeonholed. I, yeah, well, I did for a while. Yeah, for a yeah. while, I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, when you were on the air, did you feel enormous pressure that if you screwed up, 
Ugh. You wouldn't be on the air for many a moon? <laughs> well, I, I had a very big, huge setback. Uh, I, I didn't feel the pressure so much the 68 Olympics, first Olympics, because I knew my stuff as yeah. a swimming expert. I think the challenge was the leaping out of the pool and getting a local. Actually, I started. I was the first woman in this local market mm-hmm. to cover sports. That was fine, but one one time, remember when CBS had Jimmy the Greek and uh, Phyllis George, sure great show. Yeah, and yeah. Phyllis was and like Brad, uh, Musburger at you, Brent. Yeah, yeah. Phyllis was like the camera loved her, mm-hmm. and the athletes loved her, and and she played it safe. She did interviews and profiles. Well, Rune Arlich had the idea because he was very competitive. I got my woman. I'm going to put Donna on the scoreboard show. Uh-huh. That is one of the hardest shows to do in television. You have to have a very quick mind. Mm-hmm. You have to have – I love college football, but I didn't know all the leagues and all this. So I studied all week. I was left alone. Mm-hmm. I had my cards. Uh, the night before I went on the air, they canceled my uh, rehearsal. <laughs> I should have said I'm done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I woke up that morning. I never threw up before a swimming meet. <laughs> this one, I went into the studio. I was given the score wrong. Oh. Very first thing, and this is when when we were trying to break into the sport mm-hmm. as as announcers, and uh, I, w- I was terrible. Yeah, I yeah. froze live television. They started playing music between the scores. Oh my goodness! I came back to my apartment. Nobody called me for a week. Oh, you don't exist. I was. I wanted. Yeah, I don't want to, want to yeah, kill myself. Yeah, it's, really, it's trauma. Because I said I've gone, I've blown it. Yeah, yeah. It's, I'm never going to recover. Right. And uh, luckily, Rune, he felt for me. Uh, he said, "Okay, we're going." So then they sent me to Rune the Soviet Union. Guy. Oh, oh boy! Oh boy! <laughs> they sent me to the Soviet Union to cover Russian or Soviet acrobatics, and I worked my way back up. And Don Chula was so great. He, you know, he was so such a hot coach at the time, mm-hmm. and, and so um, he. I flew down to Florida, did a great ra- radio interview. Oh, with that's him. great! That's so great. that was nice, yeah, but it yeah. took a long time still. Yeah. And a lot of people follow in your footsteps, if I recall correctly. Didn't uh, Peggy Fleming start doing uh, figure skating with Dick Button? Yes. Rune, later in the 60s? Yes. Rune, Rune was all about loyalty. Yeah. He was about, uh, you know, sports are star-driven. You pick out that one person that carries the coverage. And especially in amateur sports at the time, we might sure. appear twice or three times a year on uh, on television. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we took up a lot of space because there were only three networks. Yeah. And the magazines covered, uh, right. followed. But yeah, Peggy came on board. Dick Button came on board. Yeah, I remember. Great personalities. Rune loved the personalities. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, Monday Night Football started under Rune. Uh, then later on, Nightline. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I had a lot of journey back and forth with with ABC. And at the end of my career with them, I wound up working directly with Rune. I had two jobs, one in management and one on air. Yeah, you're the only person ever. You had to get board approval for that, well, right? Well, you had, <laughs> uh, yes, I, I will tell you that um, uh, Pierre Salinger did it for news. Mm-hmm. And um, we had one other uh, person that covered boxing that became, was really an executive, but he wanted to be on the air. But yeah. I was the first woman ever to do that. Donna, how would you describe the state of women in sports broadcasting today? Well, I think if you go, if you Basically, what's happened, we have more women in sports broadcasting mm-hmm. uh, because of ESPN and because they opened the door wider. If, but it, if you look at the overall coverage and how many men are in prominent positions uh, making the decisions about how women go on the air and how they're uh, featured, uh, we're still down. We're still very minimal. Yeah. And you're way behind the news. Would that be right? Yeah. Well, I called my friends at ABC. We got to do what the women did at ABC uh, News. Mm -hmm. When Diane Sawyer and Barbara Walters, they all went to Rune Mm -hmm. and they said, listen, this isn't right. Yeah. And uh, fix it. (laughs) They made and they they did. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. they they're doing much better than we are. What about the coverage of women's sports? I mean, (laughs) it doesn't get (laughs) near what it should. And I, I could even take it to the local sports. Yeah. Um, when I watch the the news, let's say at six twenty five, the sports news. Right. I sometimes count, and you'll get one story about a women's team or a female athlete for every twenty five stories or so That's that right. you get about guys. It's just the not, percentage hasn't changed. It really hasn't changed. And the thing is, one of the things that's helping us a little bit in this, um, and I get pushback on it, of course. In 1996, during the Atlanta Olympics, mm-hmm. NBC covered those games. Uh, I was an ambush reporter on the top of this furniture mart covering for 
uh, Good Morning America. Are you, are you gorilla? I was a gorilla. <laughs> and, and actually, uh, Dick Ebersol had been with ABC, and he was at NBC. Mm-hmm. And he, he wasn't pleased about that. But now, now everything, <laughs> everything in Olympics is a venue. So you really, if you're an outsider, you really have to hustle. But anyway, the point is, uh, we had two winning teams, women's soccer mm-hmm. uh, and women's softball. And NBC didn't cover it. Hmm. They did cover basketball in a very sophisticated way, mainly because of David Stern and his relationship with Ebersol, and he wanted to. That was the springboard for the WNBA. But um, so Nike did this wonderful thing about two great women, uh, U.S. women's team won gold, and nobody saw it. And it was a <laughs> Nike ad. That's nice. So I, and Dick and I would always argue about coverage, mm-hmm. and so. That helped, and then NBC did research and found that you know the the viewing audience of the Olympics wants to watch women's sports. Yeah, so it got a little bit better. Mm-hmm. But now we've got the International Olympic Committee looking at those numbers. We're on, I'm on a women in sport commission, so we're pushing them to get this the data on coverage. So mm-hmm. we found out that on the last day of the Rio Olympics, it was something like twenty. Out of 24 hours, women only got two hours of coverage, and not that significant. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, so now <laughs> the IOC is saying to these rights holders that have paid a fortune, you've got to do better. Yeah. And, that, of course, the pushback is, well, we paid all this money. We've got control. Uh-huh. And they're not happy. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see how this works out in Tokyo. I can Tokyo, feel the tension. <laughs> in Tokyo. <laughs> well, speaking about women in sports, um, you, in 1970, along with Billie Jean King, uh, got together and formed the Women's Sports Foundation. How did that come about? Well, you know, this is murky, but um, after Billie Jean beat Bobby Riggs, uh, she was huge. She still is. Yeah. Uh, And and actually, I was with ABC when Rune said she— And 90 million people watched that. Right. Rune said, should we cover it? And Rune always understood sports is about the bigger picture. That's right. And that's what I loved about Jim McKay. Mm Because I always say when Wide World was covered, it it was a history lesson. But um, Billie Jean beat Bobby, and she had all she's she's amazing person, mm-hmm. uh, mo- so inspirational. So I said I have to meet her. So Susie Chaffee, the skier, Olympic skier, uh, who's very creative, introduced me to Billie Jean, and we've talked about a World Sports Foundation. It it ended up that she got a, a check for charity at mm-hmm. the time. She didn't make a lot of money then. If you look at what they're making now, every, I think every current. So- player should pay her a 10% or something. Um, she, uh, <laughs> she and her lawyers uh, legally set up the foundation. And she was vi- trying to play tennis and was doing all these uh, charity things and finally said, listen, I don't have time to do everything. Mm. She started the magazine. She right. had the WTA. And she said, Donna, would you step up and be president and, and create something? And so uh, lucky for me, a uh, woman named Eva Auchincloss, who just lost two Two of her family, her husband and her son, in about a year, a year um, and was inspired by Billy Jean. Said, "I'll be your executive director for free," and we created, the fa- we established the foundation. Yeah, Billy yeah. Jean's the official founder, mm-hmm. right? But and you I, were, you were, you were. Well, the I, we were there. Well, it takes everybody. Yeah, it takes everybody. That's and right. All my, all and you had been mentored by Eunice Shriver at the Special Olympics, so you really kind of knew what to do. Eunice was amazing. What I loved about Eunice. Was she taught me you just pick up the phone, you call. Yeah. And that even if after the first. She taught you to be fearless. This is what it sounds like. Well, you have to be fearless. And luckily, though, it it was time, place, and circumstance. I was working local eyewitness news beat. Mm -hmm. We had great people in this uh, community like Lou Rudin. You had uh, Rune Arledge. You had uh, Red Arback. You had the Knicks, the Nets, the. The great Olympic athletes, the boys' club, girls' club dinners, and mm-hmm. I, I did all the charities, and I could go and ask these guys to help me. And I said, <laughs> we have to have something traditional in New York. Yeah, you were right. Well, you just had it the other day. Yes, we did. Tell us a little bit about the, the gala and what the foundation is up to. What inspired you at this year's event? Or who inspired you? Well, the room was full at the Cipriani. Mm-hmm. We have a new executive director. The fact that we're still alive... On our 40th anniversary. Congratulations. With the ups and downs huh? after 9 yeah. 11. Oh, we for almost sure. went under. Yeah. Uh, we have a new executive director named Susan Antoine. Mm-hmm. And uh, we raised $2 million last night. That's a good and night. What we do is, you know, there's shifting things in sports, but um, 
One of the most important things is data. Mm-hmm. We, uh, I work with Ernst & Young for f- five years, and part of our commitment to women's sports was to do research. So we do research, and that research over the last few years uh, showed the link between women in sport and women in the C-suite and mm-hmm. corporations. 94% that make it to, into C-suites say they had, had a sports background, and 50% competed in college. The Women's Sports Foundation, under my leadership, gave out travel and training grants. Um, we gave money to people like Christy Yamaguchi. Yeah. I mean, it, sometimes $2,000 or 1500 makes a difference. You make all the difference in the world. It gets them and, out of the, the, the blocks. Right. And then um, we honor, which mm-hmm. is important, we honor the top women. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Megan Rapino was our team individual athlete. Super. Uh, she came to the dinner. And uh, Chrissa Shields, who's a boxer, mm-hmm. came to the dinner. Uh, and we had a packed room. We do that. Uh, research. We have a day in Washington mm-hmm. where we educate our leaders about the importance of Title IX and health and fitness. Uh, but I think you consulted we, on that. You advised the Senate on, on I, Title IX back I, yeah. as you were sort of cobbling a career together by a few you bucks over here. You have to do here. everything. To stay in yeah. <laughs> you have to pass a federal law so you can get in the locker yeah, room. That's right. <laughs> Somebody could pay you a wage. That's right. <laughs> So we're, we're a home for women's sports. Yeah. You know, you've made an interesting point before about uh, women in sports and getting to the C-suite. And that really leads to the question of transition. Yeah. And uh, you kind of alluded to it in your own life before when you retired. Yes. What's it like for an athlete to retire, giving up that life? And how then do you help them make that transition to their next life? It's really hard, especially mm. – I mean, I think transitions are hard for everybody. Yeah, yeah you're right on that. We're that. all built differently. Mm-hmm. I don't like them, but every time I, I think it's the worst thing that happened to me, eventually maybe it's the best thing. Well, look at this, uh, the broadcasting. Yes. You retired. It was horrible. It was your life. Yeah, it was, <laughs> you know? you know, who knew? Who knew? But I think that uh, when you start as a youngster, and they start them mm. younger and younger, from one day to the next, you have your whole – the way you knew the world is over. Yeah. And you're you're not a member of the herd anymore, the mm-hmm. tribe. You're mm-hmm. out. You you can't take up the space in the pool anymore. Mm-hmm. I remember when I couldn't figure out whether to retire or not, I would walk down to the mm-hmm. pool, and I'd swim one day and train, and then the next day I wouldn't. And yap, 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 parents, is when is she going to make up her mind? She's taking up space in the pool. Yeah, yeah, taking up time. Uh, yeah, yeah, Lane. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, what we've done unofficially with the Women's Sports Foundation, which I did with a lot of individual athletes, would say, listen, let's jumpstart this black hole you're going to fall in after mm-hmm. you retire. Because your body's different. You're, you're a Ferrari on you know, a sidewalk now because <laughs> you're, you're used to working out. Mm-hmm. So you have the, all that. You have, you're a focused, passionate person. You're not going to be happy if you don't have a direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, You've you got to understand you, you, you had a coach. You, you think you can do life all on your own. Seek out mentors. Yeah. At the time, they didn't really – we did have a word for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you've got psychological issues like we've, you know, Michael Phelps has been open about, yes. seek help. Yeah. And join a – give back. Mm-hmm. So uh, I started this program along with Beth Brook at Ernst & Young to help athletes transition to the next thing. And we're in partnership with the International Women's Forum. That's great. Which are all great women. Yeah, they are. And the reason why I wanted to do that was we get mentors um, for our, uh, our mentees out of the International Women's Forum. They're all professional women. They mentor our athletes for a year. Mm-hmm. And then our athletes get to go to this incredible conference because women athletes are in a silo between men and professional women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's a lonely place. A little bubble there. And, and you know, you want to say to women athletes that want to stay in, this, in the sports world, maybe you want to look outside. Yeah. Because it's so hard. Right. And if you look outside, you can come back mm-hmm. in a, maybe a bigger way. Absolutely. With a whole different skill set. You know, mm-hmm. by working in the Senate and leaving ABC, I left, did three, uh, two round trips or almost three. Uh, you know, Rune, after I went to work in the center, went, wow, I look at her differently. She's grown up now. <laughs> oh, She's my goodness. <laughs> she knows stuff I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I was reading about, I, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was, a, I think, a New York Giant linebacker. Uh-huh. And he retired. Yes. And for a couple years, he drove out to the MetLife Stadium um, at the exact same time he left when he was playing. 
Wow. And he would find a, a spot in the parking lot. Couldn't even get across the, the, the fence where the players would go yeah. and would try to keep the same routine. So it really was like, it, it, to your point, it, it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, yeah. It really and, is. Yeah, and I look, I do a lot of fundraising and charitable work, and I know what athletes are like, and you always want them at your event. But when they retire, unless you're a famous athlete, yeah. nobody wants them anymore. Well, they get maybe six months or a year, and then it, they kind it, of just sort of fade well, away. Well, we're you know we we that's what I I say, say to a lot of Olympic athletes. Um, if you look back at the the games in Sochi or mm-hmm. the games in Salt Lake where we had so many gold medalists, who do you remember? Yeah, I mean you're going to remember Michael Phelps forever. How can you not? You remember four, three or four, yeah, something like it. that, and, and then, after and that, that's they the just... way we cover sports. Yeah, that's it's, right. It's personality driven. Well, that's the way we cover everything. That's you know, true. yeah, but you have a disaster. It's on the news for thirty six yeah. straight hours or three days, and then all of a sudden so, we got another it's gone. disaster. We got a we got a tweet over here. <laughs> you know what I mean, <laughs> who, who, who cares about those people anymore? Or at least that's what. So let's talk about the Olympics. It's going to be in twenty twenty in Tokyo, a place which has fond memories for you, and yes. and also may have would have had fond memories for your dad, who would have been in the Olympics in nineteen. 19- 40 if it hadn't been for the war. Um, speak about the overall health of the Olympic movement today. What's strong? What's fragile? What do you think needs to be done? Well, when you think about it, just think about what Simone Biles just did this week. Well, it's hard to even think about. That was just so uh, remarkable. It is so, stunning. So it's such an attractive platform mm-hmm. that it's burdened with so much. And I don't know, you might compare it to the ancient games because they collapsed because of cheating, maybe sponsorship agents, um, the burden of of it being so attractive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and also because so much money is invested now and the athletes aren't paid, mm-hmm. they're waking up and saying, you know, we're – we're slave labor here. Ah, we're seeing that in California, right, yeah, with uh, yeah. the NCAA and uh, right, what, you know what right. they're doing out there. And these organizations are trying to scramble to deal with it uh, because there's a new rule now where uh, athletes at the Olympics can honor their sponsors within a certain limit, limited time. Um, so, But for me, uh, I've stayed involved because of the Simone Biles of the world, mm-hmm. for what sports does for you, for the convening of athletes at the Games. If you ever have the opportunity to really see inside the Olympic Village, there's the 1% or the less than 1% that are going to get on the podium. Mm -hmm. There's 10,000 athletes there. Mm -hmm. They're going to go home with a whole different view of the world. And so I stay involved, but and I I think the International Olympic Committee uh, on many levels has a bad rap, but they have really cleaned up. That's good to hear. Uh, Thomas Bach was an Olympic athlete, a double gold medalist in fencing. Uh, he's joined in hands with the UN and is involved in many initiatives, is uh, trying to clean up the corruption. Um, one of the problems, however, is when you award an Olympics to pe- a country like Rio, there was rampant corruption. Yeah, yeah. And so these are the things they deal with constantly. But what you don't see is the solidarity money that comes in, that goes into inner, inner city programs mm-hmm. or rural programs, the uh, initiative with the UN women that mm-hmm. uh, the IOC's partnered with, uh, the uh, the ability to reach into refugee camps and bring refugees. And maybe that's exploitive, but it gives hope. Yes, it does. And yeah. there, more and more people are getting involved in that. And there's so many NGOs that use sport as a tool to teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beyond Sport, Peace and Sport by Prince Faisal, uh, Generations for Peace, but mm-hmm. um, Generations for Peace by Prince, Prince Faisal, Peace and Sport by Prince Albert, uh, but they're both IOC members, and yeah. they may be royal, but they do good works. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it, it's a it's a it's a mixed bag is what it is you know what it I mean it's, it's like everything else in society well, it's a microcosm that, of of the world. Well, you know, Sam Ranch had been the ambassador under Fra- Franco to mm-hmm. uh, the former Soviet Union. And when confronted with all this, he said, what am I going to do? How do I control, you know, somebody that's going to really violate our rules? But now there's just bigger standards. Mm -hmm. As you uh, go around the world to advocate for for women's sports and and these issues, Nike Roundtable, a whole bunch of different things. What's on the top of their agenda right now? What are they wanting to do next? What's their their number one priority Uh, in terms of trying to create gender equity? And fairness in the but world of sport I, they're, for they're, women. Their priority now is because on the field of play, we're pretty equal. Yeah. Uh, le- leadership, mm. power, um, 
you go into any room that's convening sports leaders, you see very few women. And it's it's a product of the old system. I mean, mm. it's like the Royal Court of Sports. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And it was in a bunch of, excuse me, white, rich guys yep, yep. under Pierre de Coubertin who mm. would turn over in his grave to know that women were, you know, this prominent on the field of play. Um, and that's the problem is the rub. Because once you're an IOC member, mostly it's for life. A third isn't. You've got to be re- re-voted. But uh, it's such a powerful thing for some of these individuals. Intoxicating. From, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think there should be uh, more turnover. I mm-hmm. think that would be healthier for the movement. Mm-hmm. And we're, I think Bach realizes this because we, we're having a generational turnover now. Yep. There, pe- people are disappearing. They're mm-hmm. going to the big you know, <laughs> stadium in the sky. And we need young people that understand the complexities of the movement mm-hmm. to be educated. So in 81, I worked with uh, a, a German um, – to set up the first athletes commission to the IOC, and Bach came out of that, mm-hmm. and Seb Coe, who ran London, great athlete, runs the IAAF, the Track and Field Federation, runs that, and will probably be an IOC member. So, are they young? They're they're almost they're in their sixties, but yeah. IOC standards they are. But we also have a group of athletes that are elected every year to be on the International Olympic Committee. That's great, and that's very helpful. Yeah. Before I let you go, what's up with you next? I know you're on your way to Malta. Tell us about it. I am for a a State Department or Department of State envoy. Uh, I am representing Special Olympics International. Mm -hmm. Eunice Schreiber brought me on to that organization in the 60s when it first started. And we have something called Unified Sport that we're promoting all over the world. And I know in California it's very robust where you have – Athletes in in schools that partner with Special Olympics to play in unified sport. In Malta with the refugee issue and the inundation of uh, different populations and young people restless, we're bringing children out of refugee camps to work with our Special Olympics and play on the field to play together. That's great. You that's, just keep on rolling along, don't you? Just one thing after stuff. another. Good it's work. great stuff. <laughs> it really is. Well, Donna Deverona, athlete, broadcaster, and tireless advocate, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. For those who want to dig into this issue a little bit more um, and get involved, what advice do you have for them? Well, go online. I would yeah. love to women. I would love people to contribute to the Women's Sports Foundation. That's important. Um, you know, I think giving back is gives me much more than I give, and I think that that through my up and down career, my three round <laughs> trips to ABC and back, and working for NBC and working the Senate, I think that the it's just such a happy place to be with people that want to give back. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've had many more ups and downs, that's for sure. Well, thanks, Don. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. I'll be back with more of the business of giving right after this. You probably know Sesame Street as the TV show that taught you letters and numbers. But Sesame is so much more. Sesame Workshop is a nonprofit with a mission to help all children grow smarter, stronger, and kinder. Big Bird wants to help, so he started the Yellow Feather Fund to bring education to children in need. You can help, too. Visit yellowfeatherfund.org to learn more or make a donation. That's yellowfeatherfund.org. Recruit the best talent. Explore the untapped pool of 24 million productive Americans with disabilities. The National Organization on Disability is the leading partner to help companies succeed in disability employment. Learn more at NOD.org. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the business of giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970, The Answer. Can a nonprofit organization that raises no money from the public, doesn't even ask, has no programs on the ground to serve people, and provides no grants to other organizations, still be effective? Well, the answer is yes. And we'll hear how from Gail Smith, the president and CEO of The One Campaign. Good evening, Gail, and welcome to The Business of Giving. Thank you so much for having me, and I love the setup. (laughs) So now that we know what you don't do, tell us what One does do. Well, our, our official name is The One Campaign. So think of that word campaign. And imagine campaigns that have the great advantage of not including politicians. What we do is we want run campaigns to get things done 
And in getting things done, we deliver one of three things, either more money, more resources that can go into global development and then move us further in our mission to end extreme poverty and preventable disease, mm-hmm. or puts policies on the table that will make a difference in a more systemic way, or third, mobilize more citizens, because we all know that an active citizenry is the best way to get a government to take action. Mm-hmm. And I can give you a couple of examples, because I'm sure that sounds really good, but totally abstract. Yeah, please do. One example, or a couple of examples we're working on right now that have to do with money. One was a, a more defensive campaign. There was a move in Washington to cut our foreign aid budget by $4 billion. That's a lot of money to take off the table uh, in an area where foreign aid for the United States is an expression of our values, but also very much in our interest. Mm -hmm. We mounted a campaign uh, that was part public, but also part an inside game by working with Democrats and Republicans on the Hill to stop that and succeeded. So that was kind of protecting a big chunk of money Mm -hmm. on the, on the side of putting more money on the table. uh, In October, there will be the, what's called the replenishment for the global fund for AIDS, TB and malaria. And the way you think about that, it's, it's a little bit like an IPO or something. It's every three years, this big multilateral organization that was built by the entire world to really make a dent, particularly in the AIDS epidemic at a time when the world was way behind, uh, does a reoffering and replenishes its funding. Their target is $14 billion. It's a lot of money, yeah. right? But to date, the Global Fund has helped save the lives of 32 million people, This new replenishment is 16 million people. Mm -hmm. And not only do we enable those people to live on ARVs, but the more people who are treated, tested and treated on AIDS, the more you reduce the spread rate. So it's a huge win. Yeah. Now, what we've seen at a time when a lot of countries are distracted is that most donor countries are increasing their investments from last time by anywhere between 10 and 15%. We've run a massive campaign on that for months. It's an inside game. We're going constantly to these donor countries uh, in all of the key places because we're based all over the world. Mm -hmm. But we also run a public campaign and ask the public to join in and tell your decision makers that you actually care. You want to see us and the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. So that's the outside campaign. Mm-hmm. Last thing I'll mention in terms of mobilizing citizens. One's always done a great job of mobilizing uh, people in this country. I served in the White House twice and was at the other end of the one campaign. Mm-hmm. Where they were advocating to me and to us that we do things. And the fact that they had lots and lots of American citizens, and I might add voters, Behind them matters. It makes a huge difference both in encouraging decision makers, but then also giving them credit when they do the right thing. We have the same situation in Europe, but we are now building that out in Africa. And this is so exciting uh, because we've got one team in Nigeria, for example, where literally millions of Nigerians are mobilizing and trusting their own government to spend more money on health and they just had a huge victory on that. Mm-hmm. So that mobilizing citizens isn't just organizing for organizing's sake. It's oh, no. organizing because that's how you get change. Makes all the difference in the world. Absolutely. If, if there's one thing that everybody knows about one, it is Bono. Tell us about his involvement and how one first got started. So uh, he's really an extraordinary man. Now, he happens to be an amazing singer and frontman for a, I've heard. a pretty extraordinary band. I suspect you've uh, heard this. He's been uh, <laughs> he's been on the road for a long time. I, you know, the turning point for him, and I met him many, many, many years ago, I think like for many of us, was the famine in Ethiopia in the mid-1980s. And this was the largest, greatest famine in written history. 
uh, it was a it was an obscenity. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in the midst of it on the side of the lines where there was also a war for a couple of years, and it, nothing has changed my life more than that that event. And I think the sheer outrage, the the wrongness, the fundamental wrongness that on the same planet where you and I live, you could have millions of people literally starving to death. Mm. I think inspired him to say, you know, I, I got to do something about this. That was one piece. The other piece at the time was there was a huge debt crisis where the world's poorest countries owed massive debts to wealthier countries and to the international financial institutions. And many of these debts were built up uh, in the form of bad loans or overlending. So while, yes, governments were somewhat responsible, the lenders also had some great responsibility. And there was a campaign that Bono became involved with, along with another co-founder, Jamie Drummond, on dropping the debt. Yeah. And that turned into one of the greatest contributions, I think, to this thing called development Mm -hmm. in a long time, which was an arrangement that said that we will forgive your debt if the proceeds, if the, the payments that you no longer have to make to us go into things like health and education. So it was this twofer. These countries mm-hmm. got out from under a, a tremendous debt burden, but also made important and relatively huge investments in health and education. So it created this pathway uh, on development that hadn't existed before. Mm-hmm. So one was born, I mean, there was a precursor, but in essence, one was born out of those kind of two momentous events with a simple theory that organized citizens that are smart on policy, wise on politics, have a creative edge. So use pop culture, other things that capture the popular information rather than wonkiness, can actually secure real change. Yep. And he's still quite involved. Uh, he's very active. And one of the things that I have always liked about him uh I've known for quite some time. He's a rock star. Mm-hmm. He's a passionate man. He's very funny, but he knows his policy. Yeah, he's very smart. He does his homework. He's really smart on this stuff, and yeah. that you know that matters. So his celebrity is an enormous driver, but his brain matters a whole lot too. Yeah, you know, since we're on the radio, um, I yeah. should let listeners know that one is in all caps. And I want to ask you, what does the name of the organization refer to? I think it refers to many things. At the heart of it, I would say, at the end of the day, we are all one. Mm-hmm. Right? This is one world, and as fragmented as we may often feel, now is certainly a time where I think the world is quite fragmented, or futures are all wrapped up together. Uh, there's another angle on it that I find myself using uh, a lot these days, which is, just one thing. Mm-hmm. In a world where people are fighting over everything, and don't get me wrong, some of those fights merit the fights. Yeah. <laughs> but can we agree on just one thing? Mm-hmm. Can we agree that we know how to end the end the AIDS epidemic, and maybe we should? Can we agree that extreme poverty is a travesty, and since we know how to tackle it, maybe we should. What that means is strange bedfellows. Uh, one is, I wouldn't say bipartisan, nonpartisan, but mm-hmm. one works with Democrats and Republicans. And as a former government official, even though, and I was a political appointee, some might say, well, my God, that was terrible for you. It was actually quite advantageous because, first of all, these are things that shouldn't be terribly partisan. In the, in the first instance. And the other thing is, if you want to get things done, most of the time it takes two parties. Yes. <laughs> and, and the last thing I would say, and this is, again, this, this may seem an odd thing to say at this particular moment in our history, but 
I was able to work on HIV and AIDS, global AIDS epidemic when I was in the White House. I was able to work with uh, the man who had led for George Bush on creating the president's emergency program for AIDS relief, which was a huge global push. Yeah. And there was something actually quite appealing in the fact that we probably disagreed on many, 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 many things. But we had a passionate, absolutely shared commitment to ending an epidemic, which, you know, I'm old enough to have seen the early stages of it, mm-hmm. which is the cruelest, most devastating death to individuals, communities and countries that, that one could imagine. So that just one thing, can we agree on just one thing and go get it done? Yeah. Yeah, and you I know, the world I, needs wins. That, that's right, and that's what gives I think society confidence that we can then tackle something else. Um, exactly, it, it really does. It, it sometimes we try to address so many things, but if you just find the right lever and you succeed, exactly. you change a mindset that you know we can get this uh, stuff accomplished if we're all pulling in the same direction. Well, this leads to the formation of the sister organization of the One Campaign, which is Red all in caps as well. Tell us a little bit about that and how it generates uh, its support. So RED is is really cool and (laughs) awesome. What RED does, it's it's a great brand, it's a great logo, it's a great kind of dynamism. What RED does is works with companies to turn products red. Mm -hmm. And if a product goes red, the proceeds then go to the Global Fund for AIDS, TB, and malaria. And so it's a great way to accomplish two things. One, mobilizing a lot of resources. And, and two, kind of joining the fight, getting it out there, putting on the badge that I'm in the, I'm in the fight against AIDS. So people may have seen there's an there's a Amazon page that is red. There's a red iPhone uh, they're all sorts of red products, and you're not paying extra for them mm-hmm. to turn it red. But again, the proceeds do add up and go to the Global Fund in the hundreds of millions of dollars. They also do terrific work with chefs. Uh, there's an Eat Red uh, event that they do where, where a lot of chefs in New York, in Washington, all over the world, in fact, have joined with us to do dinners that increase awareness, allow Red to put Red products out there, that kind of take into the mainstream of popular culture. And we know, we all know how popular food and being foodies is. And mm-hmm. We watch chefs on television and buy their books. Um, this whole notion that the AIDS epidemic isn't over, we can do something about it, and we can win the fight, and you can play a part. So yeah. it's an easy way to get involved, and it's really, really effective. They've mobilized hundreds of millions of dollars, but I think also kept the message out there that we've made enormous progress, but the fight's not over yet, so let's keep going. Yeah, speak a little bit about that, because you can get a sense that the world is becoming a little bit more complacent about AIDS and the spread of the HIV yeah, sure. virus. You're almost a victim of your own success. How do you keep that urgency uh, in front of people? Well, that's a tricky one, because, because you know, on the one hand, the fact that we know how to win in the fight against this virus is something you want to tell people, right, because it gives them confidence. If I join this fight, we can actually succeed. On the other hand, you need to convey that this is still an emergency. Mm-hmm. So if you imagine, every day still 800 young women and girls are infected with this virus. Wow. Right? Yeah. Now, that's huge. We don't see it in the way we did in the early days. And again, those days still haunt me and I think anyone who uh, was old enough and around at the time to witness that. So what what we try to do in our campaigns is marry the two things. Mm -hmm. One, AIDS is a crisis of now, but we can defeat it. Mm -hmm. So if you join us and do these things, so 
as I say, our, our big focus has been of late on the global fund because that's 16 million people, and that means a reduction in the spread as well as lives saved. So it, it's tricky, I will, I will, I will admit, because I think people naturally, when something is an outright disaster crisis right in our faces, we all respond, yeah. as we should. Mm-hmm. When it's a little bit more distant, uh, it's harder. But I will say we are very encouraged by the fact that a majority of countries have increased their contributions, and that's a good sign. So I, I think our finding is if you can get to people and have, you know, it's not just a bumper sticker. Sometimes you actually need two sentences to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They'll join. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things we're also doing, you mentioned rent, that I think it's really going to be fun. At the replenishment, we are literally painting the town rent. So we've got street mm-hmm. artists from all over the world. Cool. Uh, who are going to kind of take over the city. And that's the kind of thing that Red and One do very well, is the public campaigns that, that capture the public imagination because they're not what most people do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you said, Gail, yeah. that as it relates to the HIV virus, we have to move faster than the disease, or otherwise yeah. we're in big trouble. So let me ask that on a broader um, basis, and that is, are we moving faster um, and faster than we used to, as it relates to a lot of these things, such as Ebola. Is the world community picked up its pace in terms of getting their arms around this, or are we still dragging our feet? Yeah, I, that's a great question. And I, I, um, I worked on the Ebola epidemic uh, when I was in, in the White House, and that image of, of, it was like chasing a serpent or something, right? <laughs> Moving faster than this virus because it was going faster than you even. The world learned an enormous amount uh, during that response. It also, the entire world showed up. The United States went in big. Africa itself deployed 900 healthcare workers from all over the continent. Uh, and the world showed up realize this is the kind of emergency we need to learn about quickly because there are going to be more of these funky pandemics in the future. For sure. Um, I'm afraid that that what we're seeing now with the Congo uh, worries me to Mm -hmm. some extent because given what the world has learned, the world should be there, should have been there faster in greater force and with more concern because what you need to do in these crises, you basically need to contain it. Once mm-hmm. you can contain it, you can start to manage it. Mm-hmm. But if it's defining the borders, you're you're in a whole lot of hot water. Yeah, yeah. And I think what we're missing uh, this time, to be honest, is leadership. Uh, now I think we have leadership from the WHO, from a number of uh, nonprofits, from really heroic healthcare workers on the ground, but. We haven't seen the kind of leadership at the highest level of governments that we saw last time or that we need. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is a case where we're not moving as fast as we should. Uh, and I think people should pay very close attention to that. Um, so that that I would describe as a concern. Yeah. I say the other side of the coin Going into this replenishment on AIDS, we weren't sure where the world would come out, but it's really shown up in this case. Mm-hmm. So, how do we how do we translate that for something like Ebola? I think is a big challenge. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the One Campaign has created the Better Aid Scorecards, which I love, and it assesses the twenty one biggest donors on their aid volume, uh, their aid targeting, and quality. What were some of the things that you discovered as a result of doing this? Well, I think what what we discovered is that, you know, it's very easy to to focus on the quantity of aid, and Mm -hmm. that matters. But at the end of the day, it's like with most things. Quantity is important. Quality matters even more. I'll give you a, a great example, and it's one where, having done some analysis, we will change our public posture a bit. For a long time in education... It was assumed, and I think rightly, that the urgency 
was to get kids in school because there were so many kids all over the world that simply were not getting a basic education. Mm -hmm. So the focus, but also the measurement, was on how many kids are being enrolled in primary school around the world. Numbers started improving, tremendous progress. Then we start to learn that, oh, the numbers are going up, but the quality of their education, their ability to learn, their, their learning skills, their ability to read is not what it should be. So you may count somebody who's been in school, in primary school for as many years as necessary, but doesn't come out with the tools that are needed. So that's the kind of thing that informs the quality of aid. Mm. Is, is the aid putting a Band-Aid on the problem, or is it of a quality that's getting the outcome you want? Uh, is it transparent enough that it can be tracked? And I, I actually think there are two takeaways from the Better Aid scorecard. One is that foreign aid is very often unpopular. Uh, I think there are a lot of politicians mainly, but I think a lot of other people think it's a waste of money. It all goes to corrupt governments. Mm -hmm. I think what the scorecards show is that a lot of it works really, really well. But the other thing I think they show is that there are some places where it needs serious improvement, and there's a bit of a competition going on there. Because when you do scorecards, we're essentially rating countries against each other, That's whether right. it's aid or whether it's money out of their budgets. Having run one of the world's big development agencies, uh, it was very helpful to us, and I think it's been true in this field for some time, of countries learning from one another. You start to get big results. The UK, excuse me, years ago, when they created their independent development agency, set the stage for all sorts of things. A lot of other countries followed that. USAID has done a lot of things that a lot of countries have followed. Developing countries... One of the most exciting things I've seen is with the gains we've seen in health. I was at a, a conference where I was a senior White House official. I was with the double head of USAID. We had most of Africa's health ministers in the room, and we were going through all the extraordinary progress. At the end of the meeting, there was more interest among those ministers in talking to each other, mm -hmm. frankly, than to us. <laughs> Why? Because there were examples of success in the room and people wanted to know, how did you get those better outcomes and what do I need to do to get them? Mm -hmm. And the scorecards can inspire that same kind of, ah, so-and-so scored better than me, how can I get there? And they're also very useful, quite frankly, in putting pressure on countries that aren't where they need to be. Yeah, no, it, it works. And that's what we have a lack of, I think, are sharing best practices. And when you can point out, even without describing what those practices are, who is effective, they'll take it upon themselves to say what worked and what didn't work. Let me close with this, Gail. You have said if you could eliminate one thing, it would be inequality. What, in yeah. your opinion, is the most important step the global community could take right now that would speed this along? Oh, my. <laughs> Uh, Not a nice way to end, is transparency. it? <laughs> transparency. Because I think a lot of a lot of inequality is enabled by the absence of transparency. You know, what are the rules? How does it all work? Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of assumptions that are incorrect are also fueled by the lack of transparency. And I think you know, it's it's. You can't find the change that you can't see. Yeah. And I think if we unmask those things that drive inequality, whether it's on the economic front, whether it's gender bias, whether it's racism, whether it's the rules of the game, mm -hmm. then I think we can start to talk facts and say, how do we build systems where everybody has an equal opportunity from day one. Mm -hmm. And as you say, transparency is a thing that builds trust. And, exactly. you know, one of the problems you have with the Ebola uh, situation in the DRC is that they don't trust the authorities. And that yeah, is really yeah. problematic. But with transparency, people have trust, and a lot of things can get done. Yep. Well, Gail Smith... Go ahead. 
Gail Smith, yes. Yes, well, Gail Smith, the president and CEO of The One Campaign, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Now, you don't want the listeners' money, but you do want their voice. What's the best way for them to work with you to have that voice heard? Go to one.org, and that will lead you to a lot of places. There are a number of things you can do, whether it's sign on to our petitions, sign up as a member, follow the issues you care about, join us for the whole site. If you go there, you can find the next steps that are taking you to our campaigns, to our YouTube channel, to all sorts of things that we do. We would love, 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 love to have you join us. It's a great site, and it's very, very rich, I will tell you that. Well, thanks, Gail. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much. And that is this week's show. Next week, my guest will be Michelle Brown, the founder and CEO of CommonLit. They have created a free literacy app that registers, now catch this, 20,000 new users every single school day. You'll want to learn more about that. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and do return next Sunday evening for The Business of Giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of The Business of Giving.